Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker, investor, practicing in the greater Toronto area. I'm joined here by my co-host and dear friend and mortgage broker, Nick Hill. Today, we're going to be talking a little bit about a question that we get asked a lot, which basically boils down to whether or not it is better to lose money fast or slow. And with the changing market conditions, there's a lot of people who are now in negative equity positions in their real estate investments. But there are also a lot of people who are in negative cash flow positions as a result of variable rate mortgages and interest rates rising. So the question becomes, should I sell my property at a loss or should I try and hold it at a monthly loss or cash flow negative position. So that's what we're going to be discussing today. But before we do that, I want to get into a little bit of a discussion here about the passiveness of real estate investing with none other than my buddy, Nick. Oh, baby. Well, thank you for the lovely introduction, Dan, as always. Yeah. I mean, we've got some great topics to discuss today. And again, a question that we've been getting quite a bit and a question that is as old as time for real estate investors. But before that, as Dan said, I wanted to share some stories from my weekend with everyone, which I don't usually do, but I wanted to tell everyone about the passiveness of self-managing your real estate. So again, I'm not going to go into the details of my portfolio here, but let's just say I still self-manage several properties and several tenants. I've built out pretty good systems. I've got people I rely on, but at the end of the day, the buck usually stops with me. So this weekend. And and again, Dan and I are notoriously bad for working well on vacation or just working too much in general, but we love what we do. So it doesn't feel like work. And we've got two very lovely, very patient girlfriends. So thank you, Steph and Nicole. My girlfriend and I were in Niagara Falls this weekend, did a winery tour, You know, did all the kitschy stuff up there. I hadn't been up there in well over a decade. So it was a lot of fun. I'll tell you, Dan, there's no signs of a recession up in Niagara Falls at all. <laughs> So throughout Saturday, when I was kind of totally out of work mode, which doesn't usually happen, I got three different calls from three different tenants having three different issues. One of them had a plugged sink. Now, Dorothy, she's a sweetheart. She's in her mid-80s. So I called a plumber for that one. Another one had bats in her unit, which is obviously absolutely terrifying. So had to deal with that, had to get, I believe they call him a bat inspector, Batman, had to get Batman on it. And then the other one was a noise issue. So literally three different issues from three different people in three different properties. And yeah, so passiveness was not the word of the weekend as I'm there trying to enjoy my rosé at Trius Winery and gamble my $25 at the roulette table. I'm getting these, these calls from essentially what are clients slash tenants. But yeah, it was, I don't want to say not enjoyable, but it just comes with the territory of being a real estate investor of my caliber, right? Small, kind of a small cap. That being said, also had to go and deliver an N11 last evening, which is an agreement to end tenancy. So that went quite well because those can sometimes be met with a little bit of reluctance, I would say, Dan. And I know you've probably dished out a few of those in your time. And then, yeah, I just, I wanted to throw it there as well. I create good relationships with your team and I'm sure we'll do a full episode on this and on your, the team and the people you need to be a good real estate investor, whether long distance or not. So my contractor 
up in Cornwall actually has sent me two different potentially very good deals in the past two days. One, a duplex conversion, one, a triplex conversion. And he was hesitant to work with me as an investor at the start. I told him the way I worked is I don't haggle on price. I pay you what you want on time. By the time we're due our third deal, then I maybe I expect a little bit of a discount here or you know we can do a deal here. But he's done so many favors for me. He saved me so much time. And that's just it. It's, you know, it just goes back to what you've said time and time again, Dan, that any and all aspects of real estate are relationship businesses, right? My relationships with my tenants, I was able to deal with all those over the weekend. Although those three issues, none of them went worse, right? They all got better after we communicated. And now that I've got my contractor sending me projects for us to work on. So just some light real estate stuff this weekend for me. Yeah, for sure. I, I like the strategy that you're taking right now in being involved in your assets as well. Like I work a lot on portfolio strategy for investors who are just starting out, right? So people who probably own their primary residence and are looking to purchase maybe one property every couple of years for the rest of their investment career and build a, a solid portfolio and some generational wealth. And one of the things that I'll typically advise people is at the beginning, I think that it is actually important to get dragged through the mud a little bit, to go through the bullshit that you're describing, to familiarize yourself with the asset, to familiarize yourself with the process. And then you know the best practices. It's almost like driving a shitty car when you get your first car so that you know what can go wrong. And you're less likely to sort of get duped by a professional in the space who might be charging you and, and ultimately eroding the productivity of your asset through that management process. Then eventually, as you achieve scale, and it usually comes from my perspective around the same time that you get to scale on the financing side, when you get to that rental wash perspective where you can start claiming 100% of your rental income, that's when it's worth starting to think about bringing on some third-party management. And now you already know your entire portfolio well enough. You know what goes right, what goes wrong. You know all the little tricks and different quirks that, that each of your portfolio assets has. You can hand those off to somebody properly. You don't want to have somebody disposable, obviously, but they're not as irreplaceable as they would be if they were the ones learning everything. Because you know you, you don't want to create a, a business that has a capacity issue where you have one key man and you lose that individual because you know we are in a high, very high turnover business, right? You lose that one key individual, and now all of a sudden you're trapped. Now you've ten years into your portfolio, you're you're in your forties or fifties, and you're thinking about semi-retirement or whatever it is, and relaxing on the returns a little bit and you lose your property manager and all of a sudden your life gets thrown into a tailspin because you're trying to solve problems on the fly, right? So totally. Yeah, I think the, I would agree with you. I think the importance of the team and the last piece I'll add is in in regards to finding those right people like we're just getting into the third party management side of things, but I think social media is really good for building relationships in this business and cultivating almost friendships with people, like-minded people where you can come together and talk about real estate, about property management, about investment, etc. I've, I've really just found that to be interesting. So for those of you who ever reached out to us on the social media platform of your choosing, we really appreciate it. We love the feedback. We love the discussion. So keep it going. And on that note, what are we diving into today? Yeah. So this is a question that Stan and I have gotten in different situations, but it all kind of is a reoccurring theme. And I guess the working title would be, should you sell your investment property at a loss? So I'm just going to kind of walk through the situation that we've been hearing. And then Dan and I are going to unpack the different options, exit strategies that can be derived from a situation like this. So it goes like this. I'm an investor. I bought a property with a great variable rate a number of months ago. 
When I purchased the property, it cash flowed quite well. My tenants paid my mortgage down for me along with the property tax and other expenses and I was still making a few hundred dollars of cash flow a month. I'm sure this sounds quite familiar to a lot of people listening. Now, with rates having risen multiple times, my variable rate has gone up multiple times. I'm sure this also sounds familiar. The variable rate has gone up hundreds of dollars. And on a personal note, I know all of mine have. And Dan, I'm sure you can say the same. So now cash flow is barely what it used to be. If I have a large capital expenditure, it will be coming out of my own pocket at this point. But worse, if rates go up again, which they will, when they go up again, there will be even less margin and I may even be cash flow negative. What do I do? Now, that was kind of a mixture of several different questions we've got. But again, the same theme, right? Essentially, you bought a property. It was doing well. Things have changed. The market's changed. Your equity's gone down. Your cash flow's gone down. What do you do, right? You bought this as an investment to generate cash flow and to build equity. But now that neither of those things are happening at the rate that you wanted or at the rate that you were used to or at the rate that you calculated, what's your exit strategy? Do you have an exit strategy? So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about a few different strategies, high level, pros and cons, and to kind of explore each one with you. Again, taking in mind, this is not advice. This is just conversations that Dan and I are having with each other and you're just listening. So on that note, start us off here, Dan. Yeah. So. I'm looking at your notes here and you've got sort of a more granular look at what we're going to discuss here. But I would really boil this down to three things, right? So, and I would just, the easiest way to do it for those of you who are joining us from the Canadian Investor Podcast is to think about it with your stock market analyst signals, right? So you have, you have a buy signal, you have a sell signal, and you have a hold signal, right? From my perspective, if you look at the asset, there are really only three outcomes and then there are derivatives of each of that. So the sell is is a clear one, right? Okay, you're at a loss. If you're getting into a position, if you're buying a, a property and you're buying it with the intention of having capital appreciation deliver your return, then you're basically a trader. And so you might actually be thinking along the lines of stock trading philosophy where it's best to cut your losses early. The next perspective is to hold the asset regardless of whether or not it's at a plus or a minus, but because if it's come down in value, if you bought it at the previous price that was higher, you should still like it at the current price. That obviously becomes a little bit more convoluted as you examine the variable of carrying costs on a mortgage. And we'll get into that. And the last piece is buying. So increasing your position or increasing your exposure to the asset. And this would be, I mean, it's not like you're going to go out and buy another house because if you're in a position where you're asking me these kinds of questions, you're probably not necessarily in the financial position to go and average down or be dollar cost averaging houses. But you might be thinking about maybe adding a suite to that property, right? As an example. And that's where you're increasing the amount of capital that you have into the deal, but maybe also increasing the output of the deal, right? So why don't you you get into your more thorough analysis of sort of the different outcomes that I just mentioned, those kind of three paths. And I can give you sort of my feedback on what I think the different considerations for each of those points are. For sure. Yeah. And, and I love that. And, and I mean, mine are essentially the same as yours. I've just put some more, as you said, granular points. So when you get the question, should I sell at a loss? That is immediately an indicator to me that there may be some desperation. There may be some anxiety, right? So some things to consider, do you need the money? Like, Do you really need that money back? Is this investment impacting you 
or your family in a negative way? And is it something that's causing you major stress and anxiety? Well, if the answer is yes to any or all of those, then maybe, yeah, maybe you should sell. But it's important to know that you may not be cut out for real estate investing or for investing of any kind if you can't handle a little bit of risk. So that's not me saying don't invest in real estate. That's not me saying don't invest in the stock market. That's just me saying there's certain things just because you sell at a loss now doesn't mean you can't get back into the market in six months, two years, 10 years, whatever. So it really comes down to the point of what's really important, right? If you're draining your kid's college fund to pay for a, a cash negative duplex, I would recommend against that. So I think it really comes down to your priorities and your unique situation with that. And then obviously, you try to minimize that loss as much as possible. If you do plan on selling, guys, please make sure you do the basic stuff like paint, get the curb appeal up. If you've got tenants that you could possibly turn them over and get higher rent in there, make it the most attractive purchase for the next investor buying it. So that's my take on, on selling our loss. Dan, anything to add to that? Yeah, there's a couple things I would add there. So I really think that people who are in a position where they are considering selling at a loss, they have to really think back and examine why they got into this investment to begin with, right? If you're doing it and you're relying on capital appreciation as your primary source of return on the asset, then you sort of already set yourself up to be what I would call a trader, right? You're a speculator. You're not an investor. And to me, that's an important distinction, right? If you're trading, then you apply trading philosophy to it. And you can, again, just go back to Investopedia, just Google this, trading versus investing, right? The guys on TCI, our podfathers talk about this a lot, where you know value investors buy things where their hold period is hypothetically infinite, right? They would buy it because they think it's in a good value. And if it went down, they'd actually want to be accumulating more of it, right? Because they believe in that asset. If you're buying a property because it's going to go up in value, you're not necessarily investing as a value investor. And so maybe it's worth looking back at the situation and saying, okay, I bought this as a trade. It's not working out. If I'm a trader, if I can accept that I'm a trader and not an investor, again, there's nothing wrong with that. I'm not judging you for saying that, right? But if you are a trader, most traders would say you want to cut your losses as soon as possible so you can be liquid and reallocate that asset into another trade, right? And maybe you decide after you've cut that loss and, and you're liquid again that trading wasn't for you and you can't time the market necessarily. And this becomes an important part too, it's timing the market because I don't ever advise people to do that. But then you decide, okay, now I'm going to become a value investor. But trying to pivot into a value investor within an asset as a trader becomes a little bit more difficult, right? So theoretically, I think most people with trading psychology would say, when you're in the red, get out of the red as quickly as possible by selling it, reallocate that capital into a new trade where you can try and get into the green, right? Situation number two, and this comes back into timing that the market is, you know, you mentioned a lot of people will say as a potential exit, should I lock in a fixed rate from the variable rate, right? And Ben Rabideau, who puts out a chart on this on a monthly basis, if you look at the fixed variable spread, the five-year fixed versus variable spread, it's actually like falling off of a cliff right now. So fixed rates are becoming more and more compelling based on what's happening in the bond market and the Bank of Canada hiking on the variable rate side. But the challenge becomes, you know, if you're playing that game where, again, you're relying on this crystal ball mechanism in the market to make your investment compelling, you've kind of already lost, right? It's how do we make the investment compelling independent of those things? So it's 
to me, trying to time the market, the price side of the market is just as bad as trying to time, if not worse, is trying to time the interest rate environment around because <laughs> now you're locking yourself into a five-year decision. And these are based on even more sophisticated supply, demand, trading patterns, algorithms, et cetera, that determine what direction interest rates are going to go, right? So if you think you can time the real estate market and you think you can time the interest rate market, then you're far better at this than I am. Yeah. And, if, uh, if, if you and, can and do those things, <laughs> if you can do those things, come on the podcast. You can, you can take my co-host role. I'll be a listener. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like no one can time the market and you know, I'm going to hate myself for saying this cliche, but it's time in the market, not timing the market. And I also think it goes back to a basic understanding of economic cycles of both the real estate and the stock market. I mean, if you look at all other asset classes, they are all suffering right now, right? Is everyone pulling everything out? And we did pull a couple quotes from some OG investors such as Buffett and whatnot that we will read at the end. And they all kind of speak to what we're getting at right now. But anyways, yeah, just a quick point on the variable rate to fixed rate. We've mentioned this in several other episodes. So I'd urge you to go back and listen to those. You had a 2% variable rate a few months ago. You were laughing all the way to the bank every month when rent was due. Now that rate's 4.25 or more. That rate will probably hit five by the end of the year. And you know, on the mortgage side, I've had a lot of people reaching out, exploring this option of, do I lock in? Do I lock into a one-year fixed, a two-year fixed? I mean, again, these are just things that you have to look at the long-term play. As, as Dan said, get out of that trader mentality and get back into that investor mentality. Just to add to that, it's tough to say, you know, when you're talking about fixed rates going up, like I feel like I researched this stuff maybe more than anybody that I know other than maybe the rate columnists and and people at rate desks or brokers who are really in touch with what's happening in the rate environment. And the reality is I couldn't even tell you whether or not rates are going to be higher or lower by the end of the year, right? So again, you can't be relying on things like this to make an investment compelling, right? Like HSBC just dropped their rate, right? Like and they would typically be a market leader, but then that's on their five year fix. I think it's below five percent again, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's four point seven nine now, right? So as lenders, we start to settle into a new normal. Lenders might try and get more competitive by making their rates more compelling on the five-year fixed, etc. To me, it's like you leave those decisions to the bankers, right? Leave the banking decisions to the bankers. Leave the market decisions, the market timing decisions to the economists. What do we do? We're real estate investors, right? So how do we make something of our skill set, right? If you want to get into that stuff, then that's great. But you're probably going to be able to make a lot more money as an investment banker or as a stock trader than you would as a real estate investor, right? And that's why I invest in real estate because I don't know those things. I like talking about them, but I don't really know them. Control what you have the ability to control, I think is the statement that I wanted to pull from that. Now, the third point I have is a funny acronym, H-O-F-D-L, which if you're not aware, stands for hold on for dear life, which has been obviously very popular We've seen that term in in crypto quite a bit over the last few years. We've seen that term in the stock market recently. And now, guess what? Hold on for dear life. It can be applied to real estate investing as well. Hip, hip, hooray. Great stuff. Right where we want to be. So essentially, this just means ride it out. Now, this is my strategy, right? There will be ups. There will be downs. Full transparency. My portfolio isn't performing as well as it was a few months ago. Will my portfolio be performing better next year or in a couple months? Maybe, 
Will it be performing better in three years from now? Yeah, most likely. Five years from now, a solid yes, maybe even a hell yes. And I know that I have control over that portfolio in the sense that I can add value in multiple different ways. You know, whether that's been a number of things we've said, whether it's adding another suite, adding another bathroom, adding another bedroom, renting out the garage for storage, numerous things that you can do to add value. So my outlook is double down if you can, you know, it goes back again. If you bought the stock at 50, you'll love it at 25. Am I paraphrasing that right? Is that the right? I think that's, I think that's the the right right? way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were buying duplexes last year, you bought a duplex for 600,000. That same duplex is now 525. Yeah, okay. You probably lost a little bit of equity. That sucks. There's no doubt about that. That sucks, right? But now you've also just saved $75,000 on your next purchase. We all know that rents are going up. That could increase cap rates. So I really just think it really goes back to the outlook. And for me, it really comes back to your why. Why are you investing in real estate? What is your why? Is it to spend more time with your family? Is it to build an empire? Is it to build generational wealth? Whatever that may be, you need to figure that out. And that's what your investing thesis should be directly correlated with. Yeah, I would agree with everything that you just said. And I think that you got to really boil it down to if you're an investor and if you're just deciding whether or not. So let's just say, okay, now we've gone through the trading element. Let's talk about people who are investing. What are you investing in when you're buying a residential rental property? Well, you're primarily buying the residential rental square foot, let's say, right? So you can't necessarily dollar cost average the way that you would with stocks on square footage of real estate. You couldn't buy another house. It's The barrier to entry is too high. It's too big of a position to get another one into to try and you know blend out your purchase price on your portfolio. But maybe there's a way within your portfolio that you could add another suite, right? Unanimously across the board in Ontario real estate, and this is actually something that I, I sent you that image of that tweet, you could add up to three units onto one contiguous piece of land, right? So you can have a home with two units in it. So a duplex, let's call it, they're not technically duplexes, like a duplex is, is a zoning term. But it would be a, a home with an accessory dwelling unit. So one ADU. If you hear us use the term ADU, it's where you're talking about an accessory dwelling unit. And that's one that would be legally allowed by the municipality. Then you can have what's called the detached ADU. So this is where you're starting to see these topics of garden suites, of laneway homes. And I'm sure we're going to do an exhaustive episode on these things specifically, but also the planning around them, the, the municipal zoning and planning around them. But at a high level, and I just confirmed this publicly in writing on Twitter with a planner who is extremely good at what they do, that basically at a provincial level, you're allowed to have those three units. So a home, a primary residence, a primary unit, a accessory dwelling unit, number two, and then a detached accessory dwelling unit, number three. So if you have a property, maybe you've already, you know, you, you were smart on the way in and you bought a property with two units, a duplex, right? And you're thinking, how can I possibly add value to this property. I'm not happy with the cash flow now, but if I sell it, I'm going to be taking a loss and I can't stomach that or whatever it is. Okay, well, how do we make this a more compelling investment property for you? You know, if you bought it for the long haul, you bought this with an infinite hold period, you bought it to hand it down for your kids, right? Maybe they're going to live in it. Maybe it'll be their first home or whatever. How do we make it a better investment? For me, increasing the density is the primary way to do that. Right. And you're seeing real estate developers who have built massive businesses, some of the biggest businesses in the entire country and some in the world, in doing exactly that. Taking something from 
two units to three units would be a very, you know, that's a 50% increase in density. There are people doing this in the thousands, but if you can add a garden suite or another suite, if you can add an accessory dwelling unit, or you can add a laneway house, you are creating real tangible value. And that is how you start dollar cost averaging the residential square foot. You're increasing the square footage of leasable space in your property. You'll always see, go look at the REITs who are doing this. If you want to go see the right things you should be doing in a sideways market or in a down market or in a challenging market, go look at what a lot of these institutional players are doing in Canadian real estate right now. Did they shy away and start offloading things when COVID happened and retail was absolutely decimated or the office space was absolutely decimated by lockdowns? No. They started pumping money into those assets to make sure that they were super compelling for when the market opened back up. And if you want to eventually build a portfolio that echoes that time-testedness, the timelessness, the resilience of some of these massive Canadian real estate investment trusts, institutions, or just investors that you admire, you got to start behaving like them. And the easiest way to do that is to really, really think about your assets and how to maximize them on a deal-by-deal basis. Don't think about the market. Don't think about interest rates. These are things that you can't control. I think about them all the time. They keep me up at (laughs) night. So I I totally understand the natural inclination to want to kind of go down those rabbit holes. But the reality is they're so far outside of our control. And if you can make the investments that you already have more compelling, make yourself want to hold them, turn them into investments. If they're not investments that you want to hold forever, if you're already thinking, oh, this is a hard one. This is a really tough property for me to continue to hold at a loss. Make it something that you're comfortable holding at a loss, right? Make it into the right deal. And I'd say that to everybody on the way in as well. Don't go looking to spend money. Go out into the market and look for a property that you can't live without, right? That you want to hold forever. You don't have the option to do that if you already own the asset. So rather than selling it as a loss, turn it into something that is compelling for you to hold forever. Wow. Clapping. I'm clapping right now. That was good, man. (laughs) I mean, literally, that's exactly it. I think you just gave a great, I guess, long definition of, of the difference between trader and investor, especially when it comes to real estate. Real estate really shouldn't be traded, right? It should be, especially from the investment standpoint, it should be bought and you should be going in with the intention to add value and get creative. And that is another great segue again into kind of the last and final point that I've got down here, which is get creative, right? Get creative and try to figure out an area you can add value that you haven't thought of before. So I just have a couple off the top of my head, some of these I've done to increase the value of the property or to make it easier, to make it a more compelling investment for myself and or my partners, depending on the asset. So for instance, could you rent the garage out? Not turn it into an ADU or not do anything, spending any more money, but literally just rent the garage out, right? Is there someone that has an old sports car or a bunch of equipment that they want to put somewhere? Damn, we just did a deal where someone actually lives in the garage and it was just probably $20,000 to convert that garage into an actual livable space. It's not the Shangri-La by any stretch of the imagination, but it's not bad. Or is there any other vacant land or space or a larger driveway that you have on that property that you could rent for even an extra hundred bucks a month. That'll make a difference. That all makes a difference in your returns. Do you have an opportunity for any tenant turnover to increase rent? If you don't have that opportunity, have you increased the rent and have you been increasing the rent that you're legally allowed to do so? Have you considered bringing in a money partner and going to someone who, you know, JVing with someone and telling them straight up, be like, look, This doesn't make money right now, but 
here is my plan and here is why three years from now, one year from now, five years from now, this will be a great investment. There are people everywhere with a bunch of money that don't know anything about real estate, that don't have the time to get into real estate. For instance, one of our partners is a doctor, another partner is a finance person at a car dealership. Guess what? They make a lot of money. They don't have a lot of time. They like real estate. That's a good combination for any real estate investor to know. My final piece here is if you can get the property vacant or at least one of the units vacant, have you attempted to put a STR, a short-term rental in there where you can rent for minimum a couple days or a couple weeks? Obviously, we've talked about this before, has potential to be a lot more lucrative. However, it is a lot more work. But if you are in the situation where you're considering selling at a loss, it's time to put some of that work in. So I guess something I do want to say to kind of close that off is always run multiple scenarios, multiple exit strategies. If you got your 2% variable rate and never ran it at anything other than 2%, don't do that again. That's not a good thing to do. You should be running that at five, at six. I once spoke to a, um, and I'm going to forget his name now, but another mortgage agent, very successful guy, real estate investor as well. He ran all of his deals at 13%. I don't know why 13 is notorious. No, it's not. It's someone- um, We'll find it. We'll put it in the I'll, I'll, put it, I'll find it, put it in the show notes or something like that. But part of a mastermind class I'm with, and this guy came on maybe a year ago, and yeah, 13%. One, it's weird because 13 is notoriously an unlucky number, but if you are running stuff at 13%, I guarantee you, no matter what happens with interest rates, no matter what happens with anything in the economy, you're still going to be all right. Even if you're only, let's say, one of many partners and you only own 30% of the deal, that is still going to be okay. So for me, and you know, Dan and I have been through this on a personal level as well, where, and I won't go into too much detail here, Dan, but we bought a property in the last eight months. And the numbers, right? We ran a three different scenarios: best, worst, and most realistic. And guess what? The market changed on us, just like everybody else. Interest rates changed on us, just like everybody else. And we did consider changing our strategy, but after running the numbers again and going everything, we stayed steadfast on our original plan. Because we had run all those situations. We had run those scenarios beforehand. So do the work before and it will save you a lot of stress and anxiety after. Dan, do you want to speak to that before we... I do kind of want to end it off with these four quotes we pulled here because I think they're from totally different people from totally different times in the last hundred years, but they all are kind of saying the same thing. And it's all kind of the same message that we've been speaking about today. But before we get to that, why don't you give me your thoughts on what I just said? I think you said it all really well. There's not really much I have to add to that. It's just you want to try and get into real estate investing in a way where you're independent of the variables, right? And again, this comes back to value investing. It comes back to quotes from some of the individuals whose names I can see here in this list of quotes where you want to be principled. You want to buy things that you want to own, right? You have to think about yourself as like, do I want to own this thing? What is your end game? Are you just trying to make a quick 100K so you can be liquid to go buy something else with that money? Well, then there's probably easier ways to go about that venture. You just got to think about it, right? And so again, I think you summarized it really well. I'll talk a little bit about the deal that I have on the go up north, where I'm kind of in a similar position. You summarized the Hamilton deal reasonably well, I think. The one that I have up north, we purchased purchased it a long time ago. Not a long time ago, but like a year ago. We bought it with a super long closing. So we would have bought it like this time last year. 
but ended up getting like six or seven months to close because that's what the sellers needed. And we were really accommodating with the deal. We even gave them a non-refundable deposit. We took a lot of risk to get into this transaction. And then the market changed so much between when we originally got into the APS and closed on the deal that we bought it as a, a triplex, as a multifamily rental property. And it has a ton of excess land. It's 80 acres. It has a cabin that we were hoping to eventually Airbnb. When we took possession, we were like, if we put some money into this thing, we might be able to flip this and and have a lot of liquidity going into the down market, right? And we just missed it, I would say. So we kind of got away from the original strategy. And I think that that really tells me, again, stick to the script because we've now lost four, five, six months of potential cash flow that we could have done had we originally stuck to the script and we'd now have the third suite. The place would have been tailored a little bit better. The renovations would have been tailored a little bit better for what we were doing. So anyway, I think that that's a good little anecdote right, of what I'm going through in my position. We're trying to offload an asset right now because I do want to be liquid based on my perspective of the market. Not really necessarily in the position to get there. I don't think we'll see the price that we want. So going back to renting it out, holding the asset for what we want it for and turning it into something that's super compelling. So we're actually going to try and pivot it into almost like a cabin scape a little bit of like add some more Airbnb of that short-term rental revenue along with the long-term rental revenue of the triplex in the front. You know, what's funny is before you get on is that, you know, you're doubling down, right? That's exactly what you guys are. Most people are trying to figure out a way out. You and, you know, he who should not be named, Johnny, (laughs) our guy. The mysterious Johnny. The mysterious Johnny who, yeah, I'm going to actually quote him when we get to the quotes because he's got a really good one too. But yeah, as most people would panic and panicking and trying to find a way out of certain things, you guys are actually saying, okay, you know what? Let's double down. Let's figure out a way to actually make this work. And that kind of goes back to, again, trusting the process, being a value add investor and going in, knowing the numbers, knowing numbers, worst case scenario, and still having multiple exit strategies. So I think that's kind of all I wanted to say in wrapping that up. Unless you have any closing remarks, Dan, let's get to these these badass quotes we got here. Let's do it. Okay. Why don't you take the first one here? Yeah, I can do the first one here. So I'll tell you the secret to getting rich on Wall Street. You try to be greedy when others are fearful and you try to be fearful when others are greedy. That is Warren Buffett. The Oracle of Omaha. He knows a thing or two, eh? He's not bad. Yeah, the guy's done all right with capital allocation. I, I think <laughs> it was interesting, 2008, after the crash, like when prices came down like crazy, he was one of the, mo- the people who was most famously bullish on real estate. And that's why he got into the best way that he could find to get exposure was basically buying or starting Berkshire Hathaway Home Services, which is a big real estate brokerage in the States now. But he also has exposure to a lot of Canadian real estate through BAM, Brookfield Asset Management. He was the one who famously did the bailout of home capital, etc. So you know a lot about Warren Buffett, but he does love his exposure to the housing market. And he was famously quoted in 2009, I think, or 2010, sort of when the market was bottoming, saying, if I could find a way to buy every single single family home in the United States of America, I would do it right now. And he didn't really figure out the way to do it. He found other ways to get exposure. But there were other people who were like, hey, shit, that's a good idea. And that's where you're seeing this Blackstone buying all of these houses, invitation homes, et cetera, et cetera, right? So many people getting into the commoditization or financialization of housing sort of stemmed from that idea. Anyway, I'll let you get to the next one. Opportunity is missed by people because it is dressed in overalls and looks like work. And that one is our boy Thomas Edison, slightly known for stuff like the light bulb, the phonograph, and the motion picture camera. I love this one because I feel like this speaks to the exact situation that we're talking about, right? 
my place isn't cash flowing. What do I do? Interest rates are up. Well, you know, what's going on? I got to sell. I'm panicking. Well, what is the opportunity there? I think we're going into a market where more creative opportunity is going to be presented to those that can see it than possibly ever before, at least in our lifetimes, at least since we've been involved in real estate and real estate investing. So I just love that because he's basically just saying shut up and work. And I believe Kim Kardashian said that recently, but I'm going to listen to Thomas Edison on that one instead. <laughs> Take the next one, Dan. Don't knock Kim, man. She's got some good quotes yeah, too. Yeah, Kim's all right. Yeah. <laughs> Investing should be more like watching paint dry or watching grass grow. If you want excitement, take $800 and go to Las Vegas. Paul Samuelson. Yeah, I like this one, man. I think you know it goes back to what I was saying from the start. If you're going to be a trader, be a trader, except that you're a trader. Maybe go flip penny stocks or something. Like You can get the same amount of leverage. You can actually get better leverage if you're trading options on margin. Not financial advice, by the way. But the real advantage <laughs> of real estate is leverage, right? That's the reality. It's allowing you... And most lay people don't know how to go and use leverage in the financial markets. I mean, they've started discovering as a result of GameStop and Wall Street bets and whatever. But the average person doesn't know how to go get taxpayer insured 95% loan to value money in stocks or options. <laughs> Does that and exist? So that's why, yeah, yeah, well, it does in real estate. In, in the stock market, most people aren't sophisticated enough to know how to use that strategy. So I think you really got to examine what you're in this for, honestly, like really, really think about it. That's why we want to try and be super honest about what it means to be a real estate investor and whether or not it is actually passive. Anyway, let's get to the last one here. Final one. Don't let the fear of losing be greater than the excitement of winning. And that is from Roberto Kiyosaki, otherwise known as Rich Dad. Probably, I hope that everyone on this podcast has read that book. That was a game changer for me in grade 10 when I first read it. If you haven't read that, go read it. If you have read it, go read it again because it's like 120 pages and it's super easy to read and it's just a great story with a ton of great anecdotes. But what I really take from this is it's patience, right? Don't let the fear of losing be greater than the excitement of winning. So that to me just means, again, stick with the plan. You don't hear someone saying, man, I should have sold that piece of real estate 10 years ago because it's worth way more than it was 10 years ago. Robert said a whole bunch of great things about real estate. It's great that Paul Samuelson, Thomas Edison, and Warren Buffett, thanks for coming on the podcast, fellas. It means a lot. <laughs> I'll actually, uh, I'll toss one in there as well from Charlie Munger that I, I mentioned, but didn't make it into the show notes. Mm. And it comes back to really thinking about whether or not you want to be a trader or an investor, right? The money is not made in the buying or the selling. The money is made in the waiting. And I think I paraphrased that wrong, but I think it's the money is made in the waiting is to me, it's holding the asset. It's doing the things that most people don't want to do, right? I mean, a lot of people want to be active investors. They want to manage their money. They want this idea of control, right? Maybe if you can apply that that sense of control and management to doing a damn good job being an investor, a landlord, understanding that it is a relationship business, providing a service to your tenants, you probably will have a great time as an investor. And I don't think you'll be losing sleep over whether or not the capital appreciation of your asset is going to bankrupt you. Real estate investing, the sexiest get rich slow scheme there is. <laughs> That's our time, everybody. Thanks so much for listening. Again, if you want to reach out or hear more from us on an individual level, just connect with us on social media or in the email in the show notes. Write us a review, leave us a five-star rating. We're here for you guys. So anyways, until next time, thanks everybody. Thank you. The Canadian Real Estate Ambassador is for entertainment purposes only and not financial or investment advice. Always do your own due diligence. 
Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center, license number 10317, and a partner in GNH Mortgage Group. Agent license is M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker at Royal LePage or Community Realty, a member of Royal LePage Commercial, and a licensee with the Canadian Real Estate Association, Ontario Real Estate Association, and a member of the Toronto Real Estate Board.